If you have your Bible handy, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, you can see uh, also that it'll just be there uh, on the front of your bulletin in Ephesians chapter 3. This again will be a text to leap from. And again, if if I had certain brothers here and maybe we'll listen on the uh, internet, this is not the steady state way that we present God's Word, but this is actually a diversion. This sermon is a diversion from that steady state diet of expositional preaching, which we had last week from the book of Matthew 16. Today, we're going to return to a topical view of this idea of the church, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the characteristics or the attributes of the church. So I'm going to use this text to leap from it's, I want to point you to this text. We're going to come back to it later on. But I want to point you to this text because of the profound thing, statement that we find toward the end of this text that we're going to read together. It's remarkable to me. We can understand that, that God has put an emphasis on the church. We're already learning that. We have been learning that. But certainly from this text itself, we're going to see that the agent the agency or the um, the means by which God is going to be glorified is through the church. And my friends, listen. God could have put the word Christian there. God is going to be glorified through the Christian. But he didn't. And so there's a lot of texts that deal with the individual Christian in your ministry. And we want to look at those later. But we, what we're doing in this series is understanding what it is to be a congregation. A congregation. It's a word almost completely lost. <laughs> congregation. An assembled people. And we want to see that in the, in the plan, in the heart of God, the congregation, the assembled people in a local congregation, a local church, is significant, significant, significant to God. Of course, this is going to be talking about, I believe, the universal church, the people of God, but from all ages and in all places. But if you look with me in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, this is a prayer that Paul prays for the church there at Ephesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I'm praying this for you this morning. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all saints. That tells me that without the collective body, you can't fully comprehend the love of God. I'll read it again. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than, than all we that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. Now listen to this phrase. To him, this God, be glory in the church. 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to lift up this very petition for those in the congregation today. We want to pray that for your church worldwide, that we will all experience what it is to understand the riches of your glory that has been given to us. That we would be strengthened inwardly by the internal testimony and power of your spirit to understand the immensity of your love for us, the church. And that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh Lord, help us, we pray. Take what could be just a routine moment in our lives and make it more. Make it more. For your own glory, we pray it. For the glory of Christ, for the good of the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you say are the main characteristics of the church? If you were to, don't say it out loud, just in your mind, be thinking about the answer that you would give to that question. If you were going to give a description, adjectives, if you were going to describe the church, if you were going to describe a local church and what it should be in character, what should be the flavor, the aroma of the local church? When the church gathers, what are the attributes What are the things, the words that we would use to describe the church? Do you have some of yours in your mind of the way you would answer that? Well, what I want to do today is ask and answer that question with a lot of texts from the New Testament and even some from the Old. We can also go back, and I have went back historically Through one particular work, I am indebted to Mark Dever and his work on ecclesiology. It's called The Church, The Gospel Made Visible. But we can go way back to the 4th century. And we find that the church, way back in the 4th century, had a council called the Council of Constantinople in A.D. 381. And what the result of this council, this gathering of the officials, the bishops and the leaders of the church in that 4th century time period, the result of this council was an affirmation that Christians believe in, quote, one holy, universal, and apostolic church. One holy, universal, and apostolic church. The church is one, it's holy, it's universal, apostolic. And all of this, according to the scriptures, is a reflection of the character of God. As a child of God, one of the things that should really be on the forefront of your heart is that you would be a reflection of your Heavenly Father. Many of you have children. And your children sometimes look like you do. And even if they don't look like you because they spend so much time with you in their lives, eventually take on attitudes and actions, mannerisms that you have. Is this not true? 
My wife looks at me all the time and says, you're Thurman. There you are right there. That's my dad's name. Because I'll be sitting in the same way that he sits. And I didn't say, okay, let me practice sitting like dad. No, it didn't happen that way. It was a result of a relationship that was intimate and and it was over the course of the, of time. And because I looked up to him as a person that I began to adopt mannerisms, attitudes, actions, beliefs that he has. And that my mom has. Well, friends, as a spiritual child of the living God, we also are to reflect our Heavenly Father. And it's the same way with the church. If you take a whole bunch of individual children who are all reflections of the Heavenly Father and you bring them together in an assembly, then the assembly reflects the Father. It reflects God and His character. And we're going to make a case as we go through and look at these attributes together this morning that this was always the case with the people of God. We can see from Old and New Testament texts that the covenant people of God, whether it be Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New, that those groups, those assemblies, the people of God, were to live in a way that would express the character of God. Not only to one another, but to the onlooking world as well. So what we're going to do is borrow something that is centuries old. This affirmation of the historic church that has been preserved through the ages. Why? Because, I am asserting, it is explicitly biblical. Now one's a little harder to see, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But the reason that this, these attributes, the oneness of the church, the holiness of the church, the universality of the church, the apostolic nature of the church, the reason that those attributes have made it all the way through the centuries until the present day is because I believe, and I hope you believe, they are biblical. And God honors His Word. And so I wonder now, just before we even get started, how did your list match up to that one? Think about how we often describe the church to other people. Think about it for just a moment. What would you say? When the church, we would love to invite you to our church. You can call it that. It's God's church. We know that. And it's not really a building you're inviting them to, but you're inviting them to the assembled people. But we would like you to come. And one of the things that, that characterizes this gathering, this congregational life, is oneness, holiness. A sense of the bigness, which is a little taste into that universality attribute. And the apostolic nature of the church. Would you describe it that way? Why not? I believe the church in modern times needs to recover. By the grace of God. The biblical vision for what it means to be a part of the church. It's big. It's really big. It's a big deal. 
So let's think about these one at a time. The first characteristic is that of oneness. It is one. Unity. Unified. The church, very simply put in the biblical way, is one and is to be one because God is one. There is a triune God. Regardless of what other people who would even call themselves Christians and others who would not call themselves Christians, um, but have other religious systems who would deny the Trinitarian God, the Bible clearly teaches and reveals, and that's another sermon to dive into that biblical, the biblical evidence for that reality. But we as a church believe that there is a triune God who made the heavens and the earth. And that this God, this triune God is one God. It's not three gods, but one God and three persons. And so the church is to be one and is one because God is one. And Christians throughout the centuries who have been embracers of the biblical vision of the church have always sought for this attribute and characteristic to characterize their local church. How many of you can say that you have prayed, and this is not a, I'm, this is not a guilt trip, this, what this is, I'm going to ask this question because I want you to see that this is something that is not going to be a, a marginal issue in the scriptures. It's going to be very pervasive throughout the New Testament teachings on the church. And I want to ask you because it shows us where we are in the history of the world. Where we are today does not have to be where we continue to be. We can change by the grace of God, the power of God, and the teaching of the Scriptures. We can change. Now, I'll ask my question. How many of you can say that you have prayerfully, consistently sought to preserve and advance the oneness of the church? Now, if this were a marginal teaching about the church, it might be that we'd say, well, you know, it's in there, but it doesn't seem to be greatly emphasized, so maybe I'm okay. But if it is to be a dominant characteristic of the flavor and the aroma and the experience of the local assembled congregation of God, then we should be seeking for it, praying for it, and living it out. Well, let's look at it from the Bible. If you look back in the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, you find a remarkable passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 4 verse 32. Now, and again, I just want to point out, there are cultural things. We'll talk about this later on. There are cultural things in the first century church that we don't need to replicate. In other words, we all don't need to start wearing a Jewish robe, you know, dress, and we don't need to do a lot of the things that the early church did in their cultural experience of Christianity, but we need to do everything that was taught by the apostles that should characterize and should be done by the church. In the book of Acts chapter 4, in verse 32, we find this these words. Now the full number, oh, how do you know? By the way, this is my little plug for... 
Somebody said, you know, well, you can't tell, you can't find church membership in the Bible. Yeah, you can. It's just implied. It's just indirect. When the full number of those who believe, how do you know it was the full number? (laughs) Well, somebody had to know. We have X amount of people. They're all here. Somebody knew. Okay, in that little parenthesis. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. Would you, if you think about, (laughs) if you just think about the landscape of evangelical Christianity over the last few decades, would you say that characterized by oneness? Oneness of heart, oneness of soul? Well, if you would say yes, you'd have to have your eyes closed to the reality. And you know what my heart does when I realize something like that? It doesn't give me joy to admit that. But you know what it does do? It makes me ask the question, why? Why is it? That when giving the attributes and describing the church, we might say we have a beautiful building. We might say we have a nice preacher. We might say we have a good youth program. But we don't talk about oneness. They were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. (laughs) But they had everything in common. Can you believe that? It's remarkable. In a day and an age where we, I heard Adrian Ryder say one time, the, the pervasive attitude of people today is to get all you can get, can all you get, and sit on the lid and eat the rest. This is the pervasive attitude of people apart from Christ. And unfortunately, it's a lot of the attitude of people who profess to be Christians. You're not getting my stuff. But in the Bible, they didn't count anything as their own. They had everything in common. Why? Because they were of one heart and soul. How can I hurt you when you are one with me? The unity of the church, then, is to be both a property of the church and something to which the church is seeking. This is important about each one of these characteristics, especially three of them. I'll say it again. So the unity, the oneness of the church is a present purchased reality. And it is also something that we should be personally, passionately, prayerfully seeking. Because this oneness was purchased on the cross. We are one. It's not that we're going to be, but this is what he did. This is what Christ accomplished. And of course, this is all a reflection of the unity of God himself. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, so we have the first century church in, in the book of Acts. Now we're looking again at this apostolic era. All of this is during the apostolic era because all of this is coming from the apostles' teaching. On the church and the nature or the character, rather, of the church. And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 to the Christians there in the church at Ephesus in verse 4 and following. There is, I love this, one body. 
There's only one. Look at how many times he uses the word one. And then just ask yourself, simple observational question. Why does he use that so much? What is the emphasis so much on this word one for? (laughs) There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times in that in those verses, he uses the word one. Seven times. He wants us to understand that the characteristic, one of the primary pervasive characteristics of the church should be oneness, unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul urges the church at Corinth to be united. And this unity, he says, is based on their unity in Christ, look, if you will, in First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one, and let's begin in verse nine. First Corinthians chapter one, verse nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You all, by God, were called into this one fellowship of Jesus Christ. Now this is going to become the basis for His appeal to them to be unified. Your unity that's in Christ is to be the basis by which you seek for experiential unity in the local church. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. So he tells them that they are all brought by God into the fellowship of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. And the same judgment. Now what was happening here. He gives specific details about. He says. For it has been reported to me. By closed people. That there is quarreling among you my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says. I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas or the the trump card of them all. I follow Christ. (laughs) Tempted to chase this a little bit. But beware when people say something like my only creed is Christ. just, Just look at them and say everybody can say that. What you mean by what you say when when you say that is what is important. Not the fact that you can use the word Christ. Okay, in that. This is what it goes on. He asks rhetorical questions here. Is Christ divided? Answer, no. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Christmas and Gaius so that... 
no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And I, I love this because there's no, uh, there's no autocorrect right here. There's, he can't go out and wipe this out. He's written that down and he says, you know, let's not start over. So he just puts in parenthesis here. Oh, I remember I did baptize also the ha- household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else in that. And then he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So listen, what he says is, you don't need to divide yourselves because of your allegiance to a person. You're to be one, you're to be unified, one mind, one heart, one soul. How can that happen? How can that even happen? But it can only happen because Jesus Christ purchased it. It is a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual reality that is present today. We are, in fact, those who are the blood-bought, born-again people of God. You see, as long as we're in this life, there will always, listen to this, always be wheat and tares together. There will always be regenerate sheep and unregenerate goats in the same church. Always. There's nothing, Jesus told us the parable to tell us that. And so in this life, on an organizational level, the unity can sometimes be hard to find. Because you may be dealing with unregenerate sheep. But in the spiritual reality that Jesus purchased on the cross, it is done. The church of Jesus Christ is one. She is unified. And so we're to seek to live that out to the degree that we can by the aid of the power of the Holy Spirit and the graces that have been given to us to use, we should be seeking to live it out in our congregational life as a church. There ought to be a pervasive aroma of oneness in this place so that when people come in, we don't have to tell them that it's there. It's pervasive. Well, you know that in... um, and, well, let me say something here. This, I got a feeling this is going to be part one and part two next week. Um, because I want to say something here. I have, saw, I have witnessed this my entire life. That the church of Jesus Christ, which is called to be one, called to be unified, is often characterized in my lifetime by division. By division, not oneness. Look at all the denominations. And I know you're not going to get rid of them because we live in a sinful world. And some people hold to denominational um, doctrines simply because that's the way that we're always taught. They never have searched the scriptures themselves personally to figure out whether what they believed was actually in the Bible or not. There's a lot of that going on. But there's also people, and I commend this group, I don't commend the other, but I do commend this group. There are people who would interpret the Bible different than I would. That have at least prayerfully and carefully tried to study the scriptures in a grammatical, literal interpretation process of understanding what the text says in its context. With the grammar and the syntax and all that we can do to understand prayerfully what is the author telling me. And they come to a different conclusion than me. I commend them for their hard work and effort in prayer. To understand what the text says. And we must be willing to uh, agree to disagree agreeably or friendly in those ways. Unless it's a heretical thing and then that's a tell of a different story. But there's all kinds of divisions beyond doctrinal issues. 
There are personality divisions in the church. I have witnessed this. This has happened. Uh, this happens in all kinds of fronts. You, you might have a, a little division where the, the allegiance, listen to me very carefully. The allegiance is not to the truth of the scriptures and to God, but to the group. The subgroup within the group. It's so important. So important. One of the things that we have to recover is this biblical idea of oneness and unity within the church. And there's practical ways, folks, that we have to promote this. You can't just say, well, we're to strive for unity. And then through the structure of the church, you and I um, segregate ourselves all the time. Think about children's ministry and youth ministry the way it's traditionally done. That's another talk. I got a lot to say about that. But we segregate all of our children and our youth all the way up. And then we expect them to transfer over into adult church. And they don't do it. They don't do it. Between 70 and 80% of every poll, it varies, that I have read in my ministry. And I was once a youth pastor before I became your pastor. 70 to 80%, and I believe it could be higher. Of youth that are raised in church youth groups walk away from the faith when they graduate high school. Are you okay with 70 to 80%? Are you okay with that? I'm not. We're doing something wrong. If that's the case. Now, less than half of them after they get about 30 come back. Less than half. So we've still lost anywhere between 30 to 40% of those who would profess faith in Jesus Christ, baptized into the membership of our local churches, are walking away and never to return to the church. Not only youth groups, but it can be prayer groups, it can be music ministry groups, it can be... um, any number of cliquish kind of group that develops within the large group. And we should have small groups. We should. But we as a church have to protect with all of our hearts and all of the means of grace at our disposal. We have to protect the unity of the church. We have to seek for it. We have to say and be willing to say, and I've witnessed this, Individuals within a group that knew that that group was moving in a direction that was contrary to the direction of the church through the pastoral leadership and not have the boldness to say anything about it. They knew it was happening, but they went along and remained in the group and remained silent because they did not have the boldness to point it out. So how should we point it out? Brother, sister. Please, for the glory of God, for the sake of Christ, and for the unity of the church, don't do this. That's the way we should be talking. Well, in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, those famous passages where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, using that analogy of the body, you are the body of Christ, you are the hands and the feet of Christ upon the earth today, and a body is not divided. If you take part of the body and, and cut it off from the whole, it is a dysfunctional body part laying on 
the ground, right? But if it is attached to the to the rest of the body, it can function and it can flourish and it can thrive. And so can the body. So if you're a part of the body of Christ, there is something that you provide that no one else does. And if you are marginalizing yourself on the sidelines, then the whole body suffers as a result. Imagine if your hand decided not to work for you today. I don't want to be a part of the body. I'm not important. I just will not function anymore as the part that I am. And that's another thing we get into later about why we do it. Sometimes we don't want to be the part that God has called us to be. (laughs) I want to be this, and God has made me this, and I don't want to be that, so I just won't be anything. And the whole body suffers. What about the church in Galatia? You see what I'm adding up? You have in the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem. You have in the book of Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. You have in the book of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth. You have in the book of Romans chapter 12, the church at at Rome. And in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, again, we find the same apostolic teaching. Paul said to the Christians, they're all one in Christ, regardless of their ethnicity. If you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians for just a moment. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Well, I like verse 26, so let's look at it too. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and then listen to this language. I love this language. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Does that mean that there were no slaves that were Christians? No, that's not what he's saying. There's Greeks, there's Jews, there's slaves, there's free people. There is no male or female. Does that mean that nobody... That nobody uh, was a man or a woman in the church at Galatia? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that everyone that's justified in Christ are justified the exact same way. There's no one that can say, well, I'm a Jew, so I, 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 you know, I'm a little bit ahead of the rest of you all, or I'm a man, so I'm the, I'm ahead of the rest of you, or you're just a slave, so you're not as important, significant as I am. No. Paul says none of that. You are all of one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I thought about that unity there and how we could seek to promote it. And I I don't know, except to, to encourage you in two ways. When it comes to diversity in the body, this is a... A desire that I have. I want you to have it. There should be generational diversity in the local church. (laughs) And we have it. We have it. We want to see that continue. Listen, this goes back to this youth ministry thing and children's ministry thing. We should have children's ministry and youth ministry. We need to talk about that later. But here's what I want to say about it. The primary person... The primary people that are called by God 
and accountable to God. To teach children about God and His Word are the parents. Not the church. Now, we are called to do it. That's true. But the primary people that should be training children is mom and dad. And if you, listen, if you are mom and dad, you you will be held accountable for that. What we have done, what we see, what I see, I could be wrong, you can tell me after the service. But what I see is a shift from the parents taking the primary role to the youth group and the children's ministry taking the primary role. And it should not be. And that's why you go to this church and it's the church where all the young people go to. You need to go over here and this is the church where all the old people go to. And that's not a biblical vision of the church. A biblical vision of the church is generational diversity within the body of Christ. (laughs) Because if you're old, you're not more of a part of the body of Christ than if you're young, if you're both in Christ. Are you? So that should be reflected in the body life of the church. But not only generational diversity, there should also be ethnic diversity in the church. Look at, look at, look at our church. <laughs> this is all one. All one. Should it be that way? No. I don't know. I, listen, this is a huge thing to pray about. The, the, we don't have quick answers to this kind of dilemma. But it should not be neglected just because it's a difficult subject to tackle. The church is made up of all the nations of the world. And to the degree that the church in a city, in a particular location, that that the people of God are diverse in ethnicity, the local churches should should show that. Heaven's going to show it. Well, really the earth. We're going to dwell on the earth. Okay, what about the church at Philippi? Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls the church at Philippi to unity. He even, he even points out two women that are in uh, contention and, and, and disunity, and he says, you need to agree. You need to agree. So almost every one of the New Testament letters we've looked at, and every one of them pervasively teach that the characteristic and the attribute of the church is unity or oneness. This is a spiritual reality. And it is only those that are born again that experience it. Very important. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you are none of his. And you cannot experience the unity of the church. Because you're not yet part of it. But it becomes visible through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it also becomes visible in to the degree that each and every individual member embraces scriptural truth. So what, what am I saying? It is a spiritual reality. This oneness, this unity was purchased on the cross. It is true. Everyone that is in Christ is, is, is one in Christ. One church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is evident in day-to-day life. It is evident in our experience as a local church when we all partake of the same supper together. 
It is evident when someone is baptized into the body of Christ here, local. Not only baptized into the universal church, but it is association going on. We are, as a church, affirming this person to be a Christian. And they are making a public declaration that they are such by their baptism. But it's also visible, very important, not because we devalue biblical doctrines, but because we embrace them. Very important. There is a whole wave of um, teaching today that has been going on for decades that advocates that the way toward unity in the church is to diminish the biblical doctrines that seem to be divisive. That is a huge mistake. No. The opposite is true. True Christian unity is based on biblical truth. So you can't, listen, (laughs) just because a group of people comes together and tells each other that they like each other, that's not biblical unity at all. Oh, you like to do that? I like to do that. Let's do that together. We're unified. No, that's 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 not what we're looking at. The biblical picture of the unity of the church is a spiritual reality that is becomes evident in the corporate congregational life of the church when this Christian and this Christian both embrace what the Bible teaches. Then we have, listen, we have a profound eternal unity and oneness. The purchased reality, the spiritual reality. When when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, that high priestly prayer that I didn't look at, we will, Lord willing, in John chapter seventeen was fulfilled, where where Jesus Himself prayed that the church would be one. We are one. But just like with these other attributes, these other characteristics that should be the pervasive aroma. Fragrance. It should be the pervasive feel, atmosphere of the church, oneness and unity that is expressed when all of the blood-bought, born-again believers takes the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, baptized into the body of Christ. And embracing biblical truth. That's where it's at. It's not because. Now just think about this. I'm almost done. Just think about this. What often unites people in in churches today? (laughs) That's true. I'm not going to say it so pointedly. But it's true. Music she said. But it's not only that. It's style. Well now y'all like to wear a suit and tie. I don't like that. So I'm not going to come there. What does that have to do with anything? You see that in here? Well, y'all, you know, y'all have those old pews in there. We don't like those pews. We like chairs. So we're not going to come to your church. We're the church that has the chairs. This This is how trivial, elementary, and immature 
the evangelical church by and large has become. Well, you all sing those old hymns. We don't like those. We're not going to come to your church. Also, that's what I should be looking for. Whether a church sings hymns or contemporary music. Whether a church sits on pews or benches. Whether the preacher wears a tie or no tie. Is that what I should be looking for? No. I should be looking for unity. Unity around what? Not style. Not music. Not decor. Truth. Biblical truth. That's what unifies the church. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we can not only hear your voice in the scriptures, but we would embrace this teaching. And that we, as a local congregation who must confess to you our guilt, must confess to you, O oh God, this morning that we haven't sought this as we ought. And pray that you will have mercy upon us. And today your grace would be lavished upon us that we could grow into this kind of unity. Lord, we pray that we would be a reflection of your unity and oneness as a triune God. That we would reflect you in our congregational life together. And Lord, we thank you that it was a purchased possession that when Jesus, when you died on the cross of Calvary, shed your blood to purchase every single one that makes up this body, this assembly called out of the world from every nation. You purchased our unity and oneness. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. I pray that even in our day, we would see your hand adding to the church as we read from the book of Acts daily, such as we're being saved. God, bring us laborers into this portion of the harvest field. Fill this place, if you so desire, with your people. One by one, one out of the world, through the hearing of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and faith. Make it an experiential reality for us as much as it is a spiritual reality for us. We pray in Jesus' name and amen.